Thank you very much, Deborah, and I am really very pleased and honoured to be here this evening um, to introduce Anne Enright, who, as Deborah said, is the inaugural uh, laureate for Irish fiction. And this really is the highest honour that the state can bestow on a writer. And Anne is um, the first writer that the state has bestowed this honour on. Um, we established the laureateship, and uh, this is the first, we established it in 2014 to recognise and honour a writer of national and international distinction, to promote Irish literature both at home and abroad, and also to encourage the public to engage with high quality uh, writing. And really since Anne's appointment, um, the honour really has been all ours. Um, it has been an absolute and utter privilege to work with her and for her to represent um, uh, Irish fiction, both at home and abroad. She's identified three priority areas for her laureateship. The first, nurturing the short story at home, uh, nurturing translation of Irish work for publication abroad, and encouraging our libraries in their work at supporting and engaging readers. And the central planks of the laureateship have been teaching. So Anne taught one semester in University College Dublin and then has spent the last six months or so here um, in NYU. And then part of the laureate is that every year she delivers an annual lecture for Irish fiction. And her first lecture she delivered in the autumn of last year in the Royal Irish Academy. And it was an extraordinary evening and given the quality of um, the, given its literary quality and strength, it was appropriately then published in the uh, London Review of Books. The Laureateship for Irish Fiction, um, the, the lecture itself, I suppose, really underscores for us the, the important role that a writer plays in the cultural and the public life of a country. And in her first uh, lecture, Antigone in Galway, Anne gave respect, time and voice to Ireland's dishonoured dead by weaving the story and the text of Antigone with the horrifying reality of the unmarked graves of women and babies in the west of Ireland, and gave voice to an experience and a reality that has often been hidden uh, for so long in Ireland. Um, the brief for these lectures is really, really loose, um, and, uh, and I think it has to be, because when a, when a writer of Anne's calibre puts the force of her mind into something, it will be remarkable. Her lectures, her interviews, even a conversation with Anne, um, they really kind of force you to interrogate the world around you, help you to see the world with new eyes. So we're here in New York, where Anne has been teaching creative writers, writing students. We're here in the prestigious Lillian Vernon Centre for Creative Writing. And we're here in Manhattan, which is the literary capital of the world. Irish writers have had a long and proud tradition um, of, 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 of being in New York. And they've had a long and proud tradition with the New Yorker. So as far back as Frank O'Connor, Mary Lavin, and Maeve Brennan, whom we'll hear more about this evening, to more contemporary writers like Roddy Doyle, Colm Tobin, Colm McCann, and a new generation of writers that are coming through, Kevin Barry, Danielle McLaughlin, Colin Barrett. And of course, always in the pages of the New Yorker, we have found Anne Enright's work. Her stories leaping off the page with their vitality, their honesty, and their rigor. Paul Muldoon uh, chaired the, um, the selection panel for us um, when we were choosing the, the first laureate a number, or two years ago. And he said of Anne, incisive, insightful, intellectually rapacious, and emotionally rapt. Anne Enright has, for almost 25 years, helped the Irish make sense of their lives, from the nursery to the national debt. Through her varied and far-reaching fiction, she has also helped the rest of the world make sense of Irish life. In addition to being a consummate artist, Enright will bring a clear and radiant energy to her role. She is our unanimous choice as the inaugural laureate for Irish fiction. Can I now present to you the inaugural laureate for Irish fiction, delivering her inaugural New York lecture. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming out. It's lovely to see so many friendly faces in the crowd. Um, this uh, lecture is a respectable thing, unfortunately. Um, but uh, it's a respectable subject, I suppose. I, it's of a piece, uh, listening to Orla, I, in a way it's of a piece with my um, interest in women's voices not being heard or barely heard 
I'm interested in what makes uh, the female voice survive or uh, in Maeve Brennan's uh, case, go mad, um, especially those of Irish women. And it's uh, very moving um, and a great honor to be here uh, in the middle of New York. I came here uh, giving this lecture. I came here first in the year 2000 uh, to New York. I had the proofs of my first ever New Yorker story in my bag. I thought life could not get any better. I was pregnant. I met Seamus Heaney on the plane. Um, I, I mean, it just, it was one of the great days. And the next day I went into the New Yorker offices in Times Square and in the uh, ladies room, looked into the mirror and wondered about Maeve Brennan who was just at that stage a kind of rumour. And the rumour was that she had ended her days or spent some of her days sleeping in the washroom of the old offices of the New Yorker. In fact, she slept in a little cubicle beside a, a lady's retiring cubicle for uh, the women of the magazine. Not quite, you know, in the washroom itself. Anyway, uh, excuse me while I get nervous. Maeve Brennan didn't have to be a woman for her work to be forgotten, though it surely helped. She did not have to become a bag lady for her work to be revived, though that possibly helped too. The story of her mental decline is terrifying for anyone who works with words, who searches her clean, sour sentences for some hint or indication of future madness and then turns to check their own. Brennan is, for a new generation of Irish women writers, a casualty of old wars not yet won. The prose holds her revived reputation very well, especially the Irish stories. These feel transparently modern, the way that Dubliners by James Joyce feels modern. It's partly a question of restraint. Benedict Kiley, Walter Mack, and perhaps even Mary Lavin ran the risk of being Irish on the pages of The New Yorker, which is to say, endearing. Frank O'Connor was the cutest of the lot, perhaps, as well as the most successful. Brennan, however, remains precise, unyielding. Something lovely and unbearable is happening on the page. Despite this lack of surface charm, Brennan was very Irish indeed. Her mother, Una, took part in the fighting at Easter 1916 alongside her father, Bob, who was arrested and sent to prison for it. Maeve was born 37 weeks later. Conceived along with the Irish state, you might say, she was a true daughter of the rising. <laughs> a few years later, Bob Brennan left his young family to take part in the War of Independence and in the Irish Civil War. He spent months in hiding and on the run, and Maeve's childhood home was raided several times by men carrying guns. After the state was founded, he set up the Irish Press newspaper for Eamon de Valera, and in 1933, when Maeve was 17, her father was appointed to Washington as Ireland's first minister to America. The Brennans couldn't have seen this remarkable future when they fell in love at the Gaelic League in Wexford, but they both saw, saw some great ideal. Their three girls were named after ancient Irish queens, Emer, Deirdre and Maeve. So she was a Gaelic princess. Her hair was chestnut, her eyes were green, a pixie, a changeling. She was admired for the sharpness of her wit, it's hard to find a description of Brennan that is not also a code for her ethnicity. In 1941, she moved to New York and found a job at Harper's Bazaar. And when her family returned to Ireland, she stayed behind, a traveler in residence. Already reclusive, she moved from one rented room to another, often around this area, around Washington Square, and rarely had a kitchen to call her own. Still, she seemed to miss some idea of Ireland or of domesticity. Her biographer, Angela Burke, writes that throughout her adult life, to the point of eccentricity, Maeve drank tea and sought out open fires. In 1949, at the age of 32, she secured a staff job at The New Yorker, where she had the great good fortune to be edited by William Maxwell, who became a true friend. To be around her, he wrote, was to see style being reinvented. 
Brennan was a beautiful, unmarried woman in a dingy office full of men. She wore a fresh flower in her lapel and smelt of queer de Russie, a perfume designed by Chanel for women who dared to smoke in public. She worked all the time, produced very little, and ate boiled eggs to keep her figure neat. By the early 1950s, the descriptions of her Irishness had tipped from fey to fierce. Her tongue could clip a hedge. She had a longshoreman's mouth. She said fuck in company and drank in Costello's on Third Avenue. Once, when no one came to take her order as she sat in a booth there, she lifted a heavy, full bowl of sugar and dropped it on the floor. There was no sense when she married her New Yorker colleague, Sinclair Kelway, fellow drinker, fellow madman indeed, that he was taking a virgin Irish bride. Brennan was 36. They were, a friend said, like two children out on a dangerous walk, both so dangerous and so charming. It's worth saying that no middle-class woman, Irish woman at the time, would set foot in a Dublin pub. Excuse me. It's worth saying that no middle-class Irish woman at the time would set foot in a Dublin pub. Irish drinking culture, for all its famous good fun, was deeply shame-bound. Maeve's thirst had its origins in a terrific social uncertainty, but also in a great want. As her posthumous editor, Christopher Cardoff, said, her work showed a ravenous grudge, a ravenous nostalgia, and a ravenous need for love. Her progress as a fiction writer, not surprisingly, was far from steady. She wrote a column of city observations as the long-winded lady and short pieces of memoir in the sad, bright tone the New Yorker did so well. Her first published stories were lightly satirical and set in America. These were published between 1952 and 1956, after which came silence. The Irish stories, on which her reputation was revived, did not start to appear until 1959, a year after her mother's death, when she was deep in debt and her marriage had fallen apart. There was a second rush of more hopeful fictions after the death of her father in 1964. The stories involve two couples, the Baggots and the Durdens, who live in Ranala, where Brennan grew up. The Baggots are happier than the Durdens, but it can be hard to distinguish the memoir pieces from the fiction and one couple from another. They're all so lonely and their compass is so small. They live interchangeably in Brennan's childhood home at 48 Cherryfield Avenue. They climb the same little stairs and look out on the same laburnum tree. The stories are painful acts of reclamation. Brennan circles around the few events of these people's lives. A new sofa arrives at the house to great excitement. A man selling apples knocks at the door. People get married. They walk in the park, go to work and die. There are visits, disappointments and interminable small cruelties, especially between the Durdens, whose only son John becomes a priest, leaving his mother bereft. Some of the most affecting stories are almost entirely without incident. A man goes into his dead wife's bedroom and finds nothing there. A woman sees her own shadow on the wall of her children's empty room and is comforted by it. In the 1950s, there was nothing to indicate, as he read a New Yorker piece, whether it was true or made up. And the writer's name, if it was given, came at the end. This put a wonderful pressure on the sentences and on the order in which they happened. Great value was placed on precision and physical detail. Revela revelation came slow and in a low key. The culture of the pages may add to the feeling that Brennan is always starting out somehow. Some of the pieces, as Maxwell observes, stay slight. They are, however, definitely stories, written with great care and radiant with the safety and comfort of home. This was a nice thing for Maxwell to say, but there's very little comfort in the story of the Durdens, who annoy each other to death almost, never mind the warm fires and the many cups of tea. A collection of the long-winded lady, ladies' columns was published in 1969 and reviewed in The Atlantic by John Updike. At 52, 
Brennan was neither the impeccable style queen of her youth nor the mad woman of her old age. She was a woman of legendary but fading Irish beauty, spectacular red hair and marvellously eccentric intelligence. Or so said the writer William Macpherson, who was, at a guess, also drinking at that lunch. <laughs> a collection of stories was also published that year under the slightly whimsical title of In and Out of Never Never Land. This was well enough received, but did not make it across the Atlantic or into paperback. It was a promising start in publishing terms for a career that was already over. In her New York Times review of this collection, Anne O'Neill Barna wrote about how hard it could be to tell Irish writers apart. The intoxicating mention of Dublin street names or of county, country counties and towns with their surges of inhibition and passion could have been the possession of any of the New Yorker Irish writers. It must have been suffocating to be so mixed up like that, especially for Brennan, who was obsessed with the particularity of things. She was a Dublin writer. There are no rural cadences rolling through the prose. Brennan was, besides, impatient of the bog and thunder variety of stuff that has been foisted abroad in the name of Ireland. The Irish oral tradition has a performative aspect that can tip a writer's persona into personality. But Brennan's characters... <laughs> But Brennan's characters had very little character to speak of. Even the word voice caused her anxiety. Brennan is described as the, by those who knew her as stylish or Irish, and they seem to know what these terms mean. But she's also described as either silent or voluble, and it's hard to reconcile the two. Perhaps she was like her mother. When Maeve brought her husband home in 1957, Una, who had long suffered bad health, was changed. Instead of the pale, patient, and suffering cipher that used to confront people, she writes, McKelway has seen only a bad little woman who hisses like a cat, laughs like a fiend, and chatters from morning to night, telling interminable stories, none of them containing, as McKelway said, a good word about anyone. <laughs> In The Clever One, a piece about her own childhood, her sister Derry was always with me and always silent while I talked endlessly. Silent but ruthless, the young Maeve announces that she wants to become an actress and Derry says, don't be getting any notions into your head. These memoir pieces circle around ancient difficulties and refuse to move on. Maeve is wrongly accused of mouthing the words at choir practice and is obliged to sing in front of the whole school as punishment. But when she opens her mouth, only a dreadful cawing comes out of it, proof, if it were needed, of the devil at work in her. Why couldn't you have kept your mouth shut, her mother says in The Lie, a strange non-story that works like a negation of Frank O'Connor's classic First Confession. Maeve breaks her sister's sewing machine in a fit of envy and confesses the sin, along with the fact that she's lied to her mother about it. But there's no absolution, no victory over the maddening sister. Speech itself is the mistake. Long after Una died, Bren Brennan told Maxwell how she longed to find her mother's voice again. It was the voice you can say anything in, infinite, always changing, endlessly responsive, and capable of containing anything and everything. She also said it was the voice she heard in a Mozart symphony, which is a big description for a small woman, even if it was her mother. Maeve's letters that end anguished and delusional start witty and sad. In 1959, a reader wrote to the magazine asking if any more of her stories were on their way, and Brennan wrote a fake reply. I'm terribly sorry to have to be the first to tell you that our poor Miss Brennan died. She shot herself in the back of the head with the aid of a small hand mirror at the foot of the main altar in St. Patrick's <laughs> Cathedral on Shrove Tuesday. Frank O'Connor was where he usually is in the afternoons, sitting in a confession box, pretending to be a priest. <laughs> O'Connor was by this time a mainstay of the magazine. He often wrote about priests. I think there are 16 priest stories. He felt the loneliness of their vocation echoed the loneliness of the writer. Brennan was not so enthusiastic. When Father John Durton comes back to his family home, 
the black cloth gave him a bad air. And his priesthood, whatever that is, is not entirely believed. There was something about the thin and the something thin and jaunty about him, about the thin and jaunty air about him in the tilt of his head or in one of the conscious, unnecessary gestures he was always making that belonged more to an actor than a priest. The later stories are occupied by the by this idea of notions, with the sense that people are not made foolish by their desires so much as fraudulent. In the springs of affection, Min cannot believe her twin brother wants to leave to get married. It was as though a bad trick had been played on them all. Even Martin, the twin, seems to sense it. He stops outside the church to say, I feel like a great stranger all of a sudden. The whole family is devalued when he goes. Instead of being reflections of Martin, they became copies of one another, or three not very fortunate copies of a face that was gone. Delia, the woman he marries, is of no consequence, nor is the idea that he might love her. Because Min cannot tell herself apart from her brother, his marriage brings sex, or the idea of sex, into the family where it doesn't belong. Delia Kelly, with her queer, cloud-green eyes, is making free with a part of Min Baggett. No wonder the wedding feels unnatural. It puts Min in an agony of self-consciousness, and she is subject to new confusions. Delia's family didn't talk as she understood talk. The dead were mentioned in the same voice as the living. Anxiety about madness runs through the springs of affection. Delia may have queer eyes, but her, but her aunt Mag, being too fond of a tree, is fully queer. Min's own father, whom she holds in contempt, is also described as queer, and her sister Claire takes after him. Thirty years after the wedding, Min feels obliged to have her locked up in the Enniscorthy lunatic asylum. Perhaps it is the, the effort to stay sane that makes Min vicious. There is no tenderness in her, even as a girl. Min despised her father, Brennan writes, but she hoped her mother wouldn't hit him. It's hard to think of another Irish writer who could put such a flat and finished thought into the mind of a child. The appalling thing, or the strange thing, is the way her brother agrees with Min in the end. Decades later, after she's dead, Min says, there was nothing to Delia. And Martin says, nothing to Delia. That's true. Later adding, that's a weight off my mind. The two are happy in their childhood state, the way Min, after Martin's death, is happy to possess all his things. Looked at one way, Min's circling envy, her paranoia and incestuous fury is close to madness. Looked through another lens, it's just the Irish family, or any family, doing its thing. The story exists on the very edge of psychosis. Both sex and death undo Min's sense of personal circumference. Martin is the same as Min, the dead are the same as the living. The only sign that the writer might be inside the problem rather than outside it is the mad way that Martin agrees with Min's madness. Even so, the story manages not to swallow itself somehow. Min is surrounded in her little flat by her possessions and by her siblings' possessions, things provide a kind of sanity for being external and real. Brennan's work anchors itself time and again in the objects of her childhood, a certain carpet, her mother's potted ferns, a sofa, a piece of china. It is, meanwhile, hard to tell people apart. In one of her saddest columns, the long-winded lady observes a drunken woman, respectably dressed, trying to cross the road on Broadway. There's something overlit about the scene. The deep-dyed neon rays of red and green and blue and white gave each face in the crowd a family likeness, so we all seem to be related, dubious, discoloured copies of one another. Una and her three daughters, meanwhile, were the four faces of a personality. To leave your family was not just to be diminished, but also sundered. How can you separate for something? from something that is also yourself. Mrs. Darton's anguish at the loss of her John, son John to the priesthood may mirror Una's grief at the loss of her daughter to America. If so, it was a terrible thing. 
There's no one for her to look at except her husband, Hubert, and Hubert could turn into a raving lunatic, frothing and cursing, and there would be no one to see him except herself. By his own account, Bob Brennan suffered a breakdown in 1921 and again in 1922 under the pressure of the fight for independence, and it's possible that Una had her problems too. Maeve expressed huge guilt about leaving her family, but it doesn't seem to inhere in the, inhere in the usual things, sex, religion, or lifestyle. Her biggest sin is writing itself. In 1963, she writes from Dublin, the pain radiated by the envious one is terrible to endure. The pain that envious people feel, it is frightful, it must be. And this shame I feel at my life, I was ashamed of having a little, I was as ashamed of having a little talent as another would be of being born without a nose. The envious one is her father, Bob Brennan, who is, like his daughter, a writer. Over the years, he has sent his unpublished stories to her, as well as published books, and Maeve is convinced that he is jealous of her success. This may be true. Bob himself might be a bit mad or it might be a mad thing to say. Already in this letter, she cannot distinguish between his pain and her own. If you look at the Irish women who made it into the lists after Brennan, many of them were some man's daughter. Jennifer Johnston's father was the playwright Dennis Johnston. Julia Foylon is the daughter of Sean O'Foylon. Yvonne Boland is the daughter of another Irish ambassador, this time to the UK. And all of these women wrote at a time when few women made it onto the published page. Many of them were also, like Mary Lavin, born and educated abroad. The sons of Irish writers did not survive their Oedipal impossibilities to imitate this trend. If Bob Brennan was jealous of his daughter, he must have been keenly aware of Frank O'Connor, who, like him, had been involved in the fight for independence. They worked together on the Cork Examiner in 1922. O'Connor grew famous in Ireland, a country where Maeve remained completely unknown. He was for a while manager of the Abbey Theatre and some of his work was banned by the Irish Censorship Board. By the time he was invited to lecture at Harvard in 1952, his reputation was secure both at, both at home and abroad. So publishing in the New Yorker might enhance a reputation at home, but it could not make one. The country, still deeply impoverished post-war, remained wary of foreign influence and jealous of foreign success. Maeve Brennan may also have managed that female trick of being both well-regarded and completely unimportant, one that played out in America often enough that the deafness to the female voice in Ireland makes these issues of reputation moot. On the same day they reviewed her short stories in 1969, the New York Times led with a long piece about Philip Roth's Portnoy's complaint. They also reviewed Simone de Beauvoir, as well as diaries and recollections by Anne Bridge, Leslie Blanche, and Cynthia Asquith. In the main pages, there were more books by women than men reviewed, and some of these names endured. In the corresponding Saturday edition of the Irish Times, the, book, the books reviewed were all by men. None of them are now well known. <laughs> it is as though the aversion to the female voice bent the critics towards forgettability. Ireland was, deaf. Ireland was deaf to more than women, clearly, but it was also deaf to women. And it is inconceivable that Brennan could have been reviewed here in 1969. It is a miracle that she made it in 1998. The paper was still blithely publishing male-only book pages in 2013. <laughs> the silence of the more Catholic newspapers, including her father's paper, The Irish Press, is a sadder tale. No Irish paper published an obituary when she died in 1993 in a nursing home where no one knew her history, not even Brennan herself. I write every day in the Irish press and get paid, she wrote in one of her last letters. A perfect life. The New Yorker never happened. She was back on the pages her father had made. In 1997, Christopher Cardoff published The Springs of Affection, this volume of her Dublin stories in America, and they were warmly endorsed by Alice Munro and Edna O'Brien. She was introduced to the Irish public by Fintan O'Toole, who was then an arts columnist in the Irish Times in January 1998. 
Brennan was one of the children of the revolution, he said, who by the end more or less lived in the women's toilets in the New Yorker building. He found in her work a vague but powerful anxiety about how women's lives could get lost. Angela Burke's landmark biography came out in 2004. It was a great work of literary reclamation and Brennan's reputation as a writer was set. The image of Brennan as lost or discarded, giving away dollar bills on the street in New York with her lipstick smeared, destitute, psychotic, was offset by an earlier image um, in the iconic photographs taken by Carl Bissinger of a beautiful and fragile woman. Feminist editor Sinead Gleeson laments the current interest in Brennan's vintage wardrobe and fabulous updos as opposed to the world she created on the page. Roddy Doyle's mother, Eta, is Brennan's cousin, and he remembers a long visit she made to the family in Kilbarrick when she was sober, hardworking, normal enough. She was on medication at the time. Some of Brennan's surviving relatives wrote to complain to the Irish Times when she was depicted on the project stage as foul-mouthed. They never heard her swear, they said. She may have picked up some vulgar language at the New Yorker, <laughs> but it would not have been part of her Irish heritage. The house at 48 Cherryfield Avenue is part of a new suburb when Una and Bob moved there in 1921. This was a time when a certain kind of Irish life became set in bricks and mortar, and the house still exists, exists just as described. There's a small provisional-looking shop on the corner, a commercial garage abutting the back wall, and a sports ground beyond. It's possible that the laburnum tree still blooms in the garden. My mother's family lived in a mirroring terrace on the north side of the city, a slightly bigger house in the less affluent suburb of Fibsborough. The walnut furniture described in the Springs of Affection matches the furniture my grandmother bought at the same time the Brennan set up home. I spent 40 years looking at the veneer and not looking at the bed where my mother's siblings were conceived and many decades later each laid out. When Brennan's work was republished in the 1990s, I did not think of her as beautiful or as lost. I thought of her as being from these new suburbs, the world on the page, as familiar and horrible as your own foot. As with Dubliners, the language moves through the stasis of her characters' lives with a beautiful and painful precision. Each one of Brennan's stories is a victory over sameness and the loss of meaning. She makes a bid for her sanity, one sentence at a time. Thank you very much. I'll take questions now. I'll take questions for my sins. <laughs> if there are questions. Why are you so bitter? <laughs> As a woman asked me in Paris. She had a hat. When did you first... Oh, okay. When did you first come to know the work of Maeve Brennan? Was it... Well, uh, it was after 2004. Yeah, um, I have an American edition of the Springs of Affection, which would have come out in... Uh, yeah, so it was, I was actually talking to my mother today, who was saying how amazing it was when she opened that, that book, how immediate it, her, uh, Brennan's talent was. And she was an a, a avid reader all her life, and short stories were abundant in the house when, when, where I grew up. But she had never read them or come across them. So it was a really remarkable deficit. I would have come across them around 2003, 2004. I think men, Bren was also kind of crap at having a career. She didn't help. Well, you don't put everybody in the same house. You kind of think, no, I put the, <laughs> I put the, the baggots in that house. I won't put the dirtons in the same house. Because then I can put a collection together and people won't get confused about the house, for example, you know. Um, yeah. Was, was the editor, was William Sean a fan, or was, he, was she being more about She was very well regarded. Um, she... 
by her colleagues at the New Yorker. And um, there is no... Uh, there is no sense in Maxwell's discussion of her. I, I haven't seen anything by Sean, but there's no sense in Maxwell's discussion of her that she is an Irish artifact or one of one kind or another. She got that job because she was really paid serious attention to what she was writing. Um, I, I don't think they had much by way of dross, you know, even although there were very few women at the magazine, and it probably helped that she really was, you know, so beautifully presented. But that didn't seem, that was a kind of value about, you know, going out to the theatre in the evening, about being the thing in New York. It wasn't, um, it didn't, uh, it, it, it sort of resisted the other forces that I'm talking about that are at play in her reputation. Sorry about that. Do you think that her style as a writer was influenced by any writers in particular and that that changed over the years that she was here? She, yeah, she was very influenced by Joyce. Um, and um, actually, there's a list of writers, none of whom are hugely... De Addison and Steele as uh, essay writers. because She was interested in writing non-fiction memoir and her... her sort of acutely observed, uh, almost icy columns as the long-winded lady. Um, and she didn't reach for any Irish names in that list, now that I think about it, apart from Joyce. And I can't remember what the other ones were. Uh, I'd have to go back to my notes. I think she shows the signs of... I mean, one of the reasons that she reads so absolutely and transparently modern to us is the absence of accent. And that would have been perhaps a factor. She was a journalist who moved into writing for the magazine that had hired her. So she was going to somehow adapt or use their house style. So that kind of clarity and precision, that emphasis on physical detail, that kind of absence of huge amounts of stuff happening and underplottedness of the work was all of a piece with the kind of non-fiction pieces that were there in the New Yorker at the time. So she was almost more a New Yorker writer in one way than she was an Irish writer. Thanks. Given the uh, the family background and uh, Republican connections and political connections, did she have any um, political commentary uh, on the U.S. side uh, in her writing, or was there any themes that that came through uh, on U.S. politics while she was uh, writing here? There was in her 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 American stories, which were quite satirical, or based um, in a fictional place called Snedden's Landing, based on. Where, where she hung out and went and drank like crazy with her husband. Um, and there is in those stories a very keen appreciation of what it was to be an Irish maid <laughs> around these... I mean, 80% of Irish women in America were maids at the time. So she was, she was very anomalous. She came from... She was more like Siobhan McKenna, you know? <laughs> so she came from that... Uh, that a kind of tradition that was being made, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s of um, Irish style, you know, all of a piece with air hostesses and Aaron Gansies, um, um, and, uh, and that, that, you know, um, rather than, but she had a very kind of precise eye for the social niceties involved in, in, in being an Irish maid. But as far as politics in the kind of, Party political sense, you get no, I, I don't get any kind of um, sense of that at all. Yeah. How did she relate to the embassy later on, the embassy in Washington at the time? Was she considered Irish? Did she mix with other? With the, she group? was in the embassy until um, uh, in, her, in her late teens and early 20s, and she went to college in Washington. She was, when I say she was ignored by the Irish press, she was ignored as a writer. There were some nice little social and personal pieces about the glamorous daughter of the ambassador. He, he was the first, he wasn't the ambassador, he was the first, there was some other title. Um, I don't get any great sense that she went back to Washington. You know, she came to New York and her journeys that would then have been over to Dublin and back Washington. There was some talk of a failed love affair or uh, hard to know what happened to her in Washington.
was a theater critic. Okay. Has she had a great influence on your writing? And why did you choose her as your subject for this I lecture? I chose her because I'm standing here and she lived down there. <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I had planned to write about, this, about the streets, but the, 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 I'm a little bit restricted by my office, as it were, <laughs> that I also have to give a kind of reader's introduction to uh, her life and work as a whole, you know. But it, I, I'm interested in the little rooms that she... She she was in New York at the time when the wreckers kept coming along and, and knocking down her her uh, little hotel where she was living. So she she lives, it's li like single women do nowadays in New York in a boom economy. She had constant real estate problems, was moving around a lot. Um, and that also feels quite modern as, uh, it, as well. Uh, as far as her influence on my own, I find her very hard to read. I find it incredibly painful. I mean, because I just can't, I can't scoot over it. I'm just waiting for the gaps between t the sentences to open up and, you know, for chaos to emerge. I'm interested in where the logic slips. And actually it doesn't, it just nearly does, you know. Uh, I was a bit frightened by seeing how similar our sentences were when I read her first. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, yes. Um, you, you were talking about women. How did she relate to other women? Did she have women? She hated them, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah I think she had one woman friend, but she uh, didn't end up liking her very long. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was in an office full of men. Very few women there. Um, she, it's probably too strong a word to say she hated them, but she didn't, she had no political sense of herself um, as in a gendered way. And, and you know, she was not an early feminist, as far as I can tell. She was very much herself, you know. So, uh, but uh, th that discourse was possibly not available until the late 50s anyway. Um, and, she, and she was a very alert, as is to the maids' lives in those those Snedden's Landing um, uh, things, but that might have been as much about ethnicity and class or whatever as as it was about being female. Yeah. Did she write any poetry or have an interest in it? No, she started out from the other from the other end. She started out from nonfiction, not from poetry. If that's a spectrum. <laughs> Um, so you described her style as being a little bit more satirical when she wrote about America. How would you describe her style when talking about Ireland? Um, careful, precise, full of, um, as I say, uh, full of unbearability. Um, the Durtons in particular live lives so, minis so small, it's beyond minuscule. He goes out to work, he comes back, he's annoyed with her. She's anguished. He, he's worried that she's always anguished. <laughs> she's, she's worried that he's always angry with her. And, and they, 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 they do not coincide or interlock. And the whole business of the son going away to be a priest is a disaster. Um, yeah, awful. And then the baggots are full of good things. <laughs> nice things, things that just are. And, and are enjoyable and, and, and there's a lot of pleasure and a slight, slightly more of a social sense, but a very a much more benign interior. She's a woman of interiors, um, potted plants and ferns and good things. You, you want to say, well, you know, in some, sometimes when you read a Carver story, you want to say, are they all drunk? Would that explain it all? <laughs> sometimes in a Maeve Brennan story where nothing happens, you might say, are they all mad? Would that explain it all? What is wrong? <laughs> that, <laughs> you just want to say, what is wrong here? Um, but it is. There's a sense of, particularly in the Dardens, there's a sense of continuous wrongness. You mentioned she might have been on medication. When she, she was, on. yeah. What? Was she able to control? She wasn't, no. It got a bit confusing. I had to trim it back because Roddy, uh, when I talked to him years ago, said, yeah, she was, yeah, she was a middle-aged woman, like, 
I was 16, 15, 11, you know, whatever it was, I was interested in, I think he said leprosy and cowboys. <laughs> I'd had a normal young, young boy's interest and there was, there was a, a, a kind of place at the back of the house where she sat and wrote and she wrote at night. But she didn't rave. She was, seemed perfectly normal and well-mannered. And all the rest. she wrote all her correspondence at that time is about paychecks and reviews. Um, but she then left very suddenly, and I think they were called to the cop station a few days later. So it was clear that she had got complacent about her, her meds and had gone off them. And it is known that she was on medication before she made that visit to Dublin. And then she went, you know, away. She went off. What was the condition? Um... Well, um well, alcoholism would have been uh, um, part of it, but um, that, that might have been self-medication for bi bipolar. But I wouldn't call it between bipolar and paranoid schizophrenia. If you want me to call it, I can't, I can't do that. Maybe a different type of schizophrenia. She didn't seem paranoid. She was endlessly, weirdly... She gave things away all the time. It was almost like she couldn't bear to have possessions and was continually divesting herself of money and of things. Always had been as a value to her, generous all her life, but became profligate and weird with it later on. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I was just wondering about, I th think like this talk was so important um, and you know, echoing your concerns about the loss, losing these voices or voices, women's voices that aren't heard in Ireland. And I was just wondering, so Mae Bren is rediscovered in the late 90s, early 21st century. And do you think that there's a chance that she could be forgotten again? And talks like these and events like these are so important, so that doesn't happen. I was just like wondering well, whether is that... It, could it was that, so you know, exciting to yeah. read a kind of new writer that had always existed. Um, and to chime somehow with her voice. Um, but I lost my copy of Springs of Affection when I was, um, the Springs of Affection when I was writing this and I went into Koch Books, you know, the, the uh, used bookshop um, there near Dawson Street and they didn't have a single volume. Um, and there was nothing in the shops, it was out of print. And then the Stinging Fly is bringing this out again. But it is extremely, I think, one of the, one of the things I was trying to balance in, in the lecture is the idea that in order for a reputation to hold, an Irish reputation for, to hold, it has to have that tension and balance between home and abroad. And the home side of the equation didn't work. So, so that's how the reputation could fall. But wh when we revive a reputation like this, that the circumference of the Irish tradition is just the right size to keep somebody in mind, you know? That in the long term, the Irish tradition is a better place to hold Maeve Brennan than the, um, than the world, the global, or the American, you know? But I was giving out to Sean Rocks on the radio today, um, saying, I mean, we're always banging on about women's voices. Women's voices are always voicing their concerns about voice, and, um, and so it goes. And there isn't any, there aren't any men saying anything about anything. <laughs> I mean, you know, why should, why should it be, you know, that double burden that women should suffer discrimination and put all the work in to fix it? And that if we argue really, really, really well, that some idea of maleness will shift its opinion slightly one way or the other. If we do, if we're really, if we argue properly. <laughs> and I kind of think, well, why don't, why, do, why does, why is that the way it always works? I don't know. Um, it would be lovely to see a male academic or a male interest in 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 such matters. Say, this is this is why. This is how, and we're really, really, really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is that a comment on Field Day and the fact that they brought out this whole volume? Oh, I was I just laughed and laughed for a decade after Field Day. 
<laughs> I howled with... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, Field Day came out in, what, 1991? And they, I think one of the editors said they forgot to put any women in. They just forgot. But I, I took it then as a kind of... Personally, I was at the kind of beginning of my writerly ambitions and to realise that it didn't matter a damn what you said uh, was... Uh, every problem is its own solution. I mean, if you couldn't be heard, then you can say anything at all. So I took it as a, as license and freedom to say whatever I wanted to because it wouldn't... There was no traction in it. It didn't matter. Uh, do you have a favourite of her pieces? And if so, why? I think the last big story, The Springs of Affection, um, is the one that's closest to, to this circling idea of, of, of madness and is one of my favourites. But there is the other one, um, uh, which title escapes me, the one about the priest, okay, where, where, where Mrs. Durton goes hanging on to the railings down Eglinton Road in anguish and despair on her way down to Donnybrook Church. These stories are made additionally powerful by the fact that I pass these places so many, so many hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. And I can't go down that road now without seeing Mrs. Durden in anguish, hanging on to the railings on Eglinton Road, thinking that maybe he'll take her in as a housekeeper. Which, which female writers have you really admired over the so many, so many. Alice Munro, is a um, Tony Morrison, um, many American voices. Um, I, I think the uh, female voice in America has kind of got somewhere that, that that where we're trying to go. That some of the most interesting work will always, you know, it'll be uh, it. It's female, put it that way. But I'm kind of gender free when I write, if I can share. Um, I don't really write from a gendered place, one way or the other. I think the Im imagination isn't highly, isn't, a, isn't for me anyway, a highly gendered place. Kind of gender attaches to it quite quickly. But that kind of central f uh, f state of flow is somehow ungendered. Pre-gender. <laughs> Post-gender. Post Okay, thank you so much. <laughs>